We are continuing throughout this fall season to consider what it means to draw our life, to draw our identity, to draw all of who we are from that practice of worship. As part of uh, that series or this series on, on worship, we are going through and referencing from time to time uh, this book or series of books called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Uh, many of our small groups are using this as a course and, and going through it over the next eight weeks. Let me invite you, if you'd like to sort of read more and reflect more on what you're hearing about on Sunday mornings, uh, there are several copies still available uh, during the fellowship time, 10.30 to 11, downstairs. There's a table there, and these books, I think, are $7 for the book itself, uh, and then there is a devotional guide that goes along with it, and I think these are $6 a copy. Uh, again, with their suggested donation, uh, please take one, uh, whether you've brought the money today or not, but uh, that will help us recoup our costs if you're able to, to write a check or, or leave um, some resources there. Both of them are really helpful, I think, at what it means uh, to look at what's going on inside of who we are as we seek to become uh, closer, more faithful disciples of Jesus, so that we integrate what we believe about Jesus with our emotions, and we live them out into the practice of our relationships, that we move toward worshiping God with all of who we are. This morning, we are looking in particular at some barriers that we encounter in a life of worship, and and some places, perhaps, of deficit for us. In the the mid to late 1990s, there was a somewhat unconventional Anglican church in the city of Watford, England. And the church became known for its ability to attract huge crowds of young people. And this was due to the sort of creativity around their worship service. It was also due in large measure to those leading the music at this particular church, which included the likes of Matt Redman as one of its worship leaders. The church was called Soul Survivor, and it drew tens of thousands of Brits every summer for a large worship festival they hosted. But as the the church was gaining in prominence and notoriety, as the crowds were getting bigger, the worship leader, Matt Redman, says, somewhere along the way, we lost something. He says, at that time, songs and style and personal volume preferences and so on had crept far too high up the ladder. And we lost the dynamic of worship being an all-consuming response to God's glory. The pressure and the expectations surrounding the sort of gathered worship time itself became too much. They became exhausting to the pastor and the leadership team. And so the church decided to make a rather dramatic shift. They put away the microphones, they shut down the projectors, they put away their instruments. And for a season, they moved uh, the church service to an adjoining room, a very simple room. And Redmond says, for for that season, they met simply with their own voices and their Bibles open. No other instrumentation. And it was during that time that that Matt Redmond struggled with his own role as a worship leader, right? He, He had this 
career that was sort of bursting and, and he had this place of prominence in the congregation, but now that was sort of all put on the back burner for this season. And during that time of, of wrestling this out with God, he sat down to write one morning and he came up with these words that became the lyrics to one of his songs. He says, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. It's kind of the image there from last week of, of wanting to be able to bring God a sacrifice, uh, an offering that will bless him. But longing to, to have something that's of worth, something from who we are in, in our core identity. Well, these became the opening lines to his song, The Heart of Worship. And it was the, the very first song that he played when the worship band and, and the instruments and all, all of the rest of the worship service was brought back uh, into that church several months later. But the chorus of the song says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship because it's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry for the thing I've made it because it's all about you, Jesus. As we look at our passage this morning in Luke chapter 10, we'll see that there are many things that can distract us from a life of worship. But the the center of worship is a place we're always invited to come back to. And that center was and always will be the person and the work in the glory of Jesus himself. Jesus would call us away from our distractions. He'd call us away from any approach to to worship and relationship with him that would empty us or fatigue us or create an, an undue set of expectations. And instead, Jesus will say this morning that worship is about choosing what is better. Worship is about choosing to be with him. If you turn to Luke chapter 10, I'm going to begin in verse 38 this morning. Let me pray for us as we look into the word of God. Lord, we worship all sorts of different things with our attention, the resources you have given us. Lord, there's so much that would distract us. Even when we come to worship you, we confess we are often a distracted people. Lord, thank you for this simplicity, for the intimacy of of worship itself. It does not ask more than we can give. Instead, it asks us to come and be at your feet. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I teach this morning, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So Luke 10 picks up as Jesus is on his way toward Jerusalem. The second half of Luke's gospel is is all about this, this sort of 
sustained journey toward the, the events of the Passion Week, Jesus' crucifixion and then resurrection. And they are on their way, and we're told that, that on uh, the road to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples encounter another village here in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Martha extends hospitality to Jesus. And if you go back to the start of chapter 10 here, Jesus goes out of his way in in this time of teaching to connect discipleship and hospitality. And the way he he drives this message home is by creating a kind of experiment. He sends out 72 of his disciples in pairs of two, so 36 pairs. And he says, go out to the surrounding villages and, and proclaim the kingdom of God and its arrival. And as you do so, you know, take nothing with you. And depend upon the hospitality of of the people living in those villages. And for those who welcome you into their homes, Jesus says the peace of God will rest upon their household. And to those who reject you, Jesus says, simply wipe the dust from your feet and, and move on to the next village. And so here in verse 38, after the the 72 are sent out, they come back. Right, there's this emphasis on hospitality. Now we see Jesus and a group of his disciples moving through one of these villages and a woman responding with the hospitality we've just, just heard taught about. It says that as they passed through the village, Martha opened her home to them. And we see her taking then that, that first step toward discipleship, right? Hospitality, welcoming Jesus into her life, into her home. If you have experienced the love of God in in a kind of personal conversion in your own life, you know that excitement of welcoming Jesus in. Inviting God into the spaces, into the rooms that maybe were once walled off or, or closed off from God's presence previously. And as God steps into our midst, there's this, this sense of exhilaration. We may have our own expectations of, of what that new relationship with God will hold. And with Martha welcoming Jesus into her home, we, we may then expect this kind of peace that Jesus has described earlier in chapter 10 to settle over her, right? a, a transformation to take place in her personally. But interestingly enough, the arrival of Jesus and all the excitement that surrounds it actually stirs up some rather unpleasant things in Martha. Jesus steps on maybe what were previously well-hidden or invisible landmines that lay deeper down in Martha's heart. And we see this, this new closeness, this new intimacy with Jesus surfaces those things. Look at verse 39 through 41. Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, 
Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. It's probably not the first words we all like to hear from Jesus. Luke tells us that, as he kind of unpacks the story for us, that this household doesn't just have one resident, but two, two sisters, Martha and Mary. And Martha appears to be the extroverted, the the go-getter type, the one who invites Jesus over and into their home. And I can picture Martha bursting through the door that day, shouting for Mary to, to hurry up and to help her get things ready. Right, this rabbi and, and a pack of hungry disciples are on their way, coming for dinner. If you've ever spent time in the Middle East or in a Middle Eastern household, you'll know how central hospitality is. How it goes way beyond anything we would expect in Western culture. Right, guests are treated like royalty. There's, there's tea and all kinds of food and you're given the place of honor to sit in, and and you're not allowed to do anything except be waited upon. And so that means when Jesus finally turns up here at their home, Martha decides to welcome Jesus into her life by going to work for him. She assumes that that her duty is is to notice this long list of, of hosting responsibilities and to get things moving. Surely Jesus will feel blessed by her work ethic. I think this is pretty typical of the values we often implicitly or explicitly foster in our churches. People welcome Jesus into their lives, and before too long, we get busy putting them to work for him. How often do you find yourself working for Jesus. Right, on, on the one hand, serving in the church is, is a vital part of how we get integrated into this body, into this community. Right, the, the work we do can be a, a beautiful fruit of, of a deepening place of worship in our lives. But there are often pitfalls to be aware of. I remember sitting with a friend of mine who ran a a rather sizable Christian organization overseas. And he's a great leader, he's a great manager, he has a deep and sensitive heart for those he serves. But I also knew that the position he was in meant that he worked long hours every week, it meant that he frequently traveled around the country he was living in. And when the rest of his staff had time off, That meant he had an opportunity to catch up on things in the office. And on top of that, he had a young family to look after. And he would probably been serving in that role for more than 10 years at the point we were sitting down to catch up. And we started to talk about the challenges of, of living from that place, of living a life without much measure or margin of rest. And he talked about how hard it was to have space for real friendships. 
Life at that point in time for him was mostly work, a little slice carved out for family, and, and that was it. And I said, do you think that, that that could change in your life? And he said, well, maybe in four or five or six years down the road, I could make some changes. But for right now, this is what's required of me. This is what I have to do. This is what the organization needs me to do. And we all have different personalities. We all have different capacities and limits of what we're able to endure. But I think quite often the the obligations and the expectations that we attach to our lives for God can lead us to a kind of worship fatigue. We are so busy doing things for God that we're unable, we're too tired to enjoy his company with us. Or even worse, we may start to resent his presence in our life. In the passage here in verse 40, it says that Martha is distracted by the work of hosting Jesus. Jesus has come to her home, but she can't actually enjoy the fact that he's there. In fact, it's caused trouble for her. And I think she's distracted externally, but also internally. Distracted emotionally. I think we get a clue to this in her use of language in verse 40. Me language. Lord, don't you care about me? Lord, don't you care that I am working by myself? Tell my sister to help me. I think those are all clues that Martha's hospitality is coming now from not a place of worship, but is being driven by expectation. As a a people pleaser, I often find myself living in this tension. There are a hundred needs, a hundred opportunities, a hundred deficits that I'm aware of. And maybe a few of them God might be calling me to step into. But but many of them are are beyond the scope, beyond the capacity of what I actually have the ability to enter into. And when I respond to the invitation to serve or to minister, do I do that of, of a free choice? Am I freely serving others from a place of love or or am I quietly grumbling all along the way right? at how others' shortcomings are now my burden to bear? And sometimes the more we serve, the grumpier we get as people. And what's particularly insidious is when we begin to attach those burdens, attach those expectations, and we connect them to Jesus himself what it means to know him, what it means to follow him. If you've ever thought longingly about life outside the church, about a life free from those commitments and expectations, you can probably appreciate what I'm talking about. So much of our well-intentioned activity in ministry becomes dangerous when it leaves us empty and exhausted. Jesus looks at Martha here in verse 41 and he notices 
this deficit, this fatigue. He says, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. What began as a well-intentioned desire to welcome me into your home has now transformed into anxiety and anger in your heart. And those, those emotional responses are signs of what Peter Scazzaro in, in his book, Emotionally, Unhealthy, or Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, these are signs of what he calls emotionally unhealthy spirituality. Signs that often as good Christians we, we sort of cut ourselves off from noticing. We want to appear well-adjusted and, and obedient and so we ignore what's happening within us. And I'd encourage you to, to look through the, the first chapter of this book and to notice all of the, the different ways in which uh, something may be amiss in, in our hearts, in our emotional responses. But as we look at Martha in particular, I think we could diagnose at least four of these symptoms are present in this story. First of all, Martha is ignoring the anger and anxiety she's feeling so that she can keep working. She she can keep serving Jesus more efficiently. Number six, she's so focused on doing for God that she's about to miss the most incredible opportunity to simply be with him. How many of you have, have God turning up to have dinner in your living room? Here she is distracted instead. Number nine, by choosing to take all of the preparations of of hosting Jesus upon herself, she's choosing to live without limits or boundaries. Rather than adjusting her expectations in the situation, she just kind of pushes further out into stress mode, into a, a hostile response. And number 10, right, all of this, this turmoil within her, the anger and the anxiety, it tempts her to judge her sister Mary. And Martha not so subtly infers that Mary's either being lazy or selfish in, in choosing to sit with Jesus. So we have Martha's response, but at the very same time, we notice that in, in the arrival of Jesus into her home, Mary has taken an alternate route. Mary goes into the living room. Maybe she straightens the furniture for a second. She offers Jesus a place of honor as the guest. But then to Martha's horror, Mary sits down. She stops working. And she sits down at the feet of Jesus. And as as one historian points out, at a banquet like this, you might recline next to a guest, but to sit on the floor, to sit at someone's feet, is something different, culturally speaking. To sit at one's feet was always the posture of discipleship. It's the posture of, of listening to, of of. Noticing one as, as worthy of recognition and honor 
the master and the teacher. And as we discover in verse 42, this is precisely the kind of welcome, the kind of hospitality Jesus was waiting for. Verses 41 and 42. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary has chosen the posture of discipleship. If I were to ask you, maybe before coming in this morning, what is it that disciples do? Make a a checklist, brainstorm. What does it take to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What are their requirements? We probably would have a pretty lengthy job description. Disciples read their Bibles. Disciples set aside time to pray. Disciples go to a small group. They serve on ministry teams. They love and serve their neighbors. And those are all likely outcomes of discipleship. Likely outcomes of a relationship with Jesus, I suppose. But here in verse 42, when Jesus speaks about discipleship, his his definition is fabulously simple. He says, as we go through our everyday life, as we navigate all the expectations and concerns, he says, few of them are needed, or indeed, only one. And he says, that one thing is to be with him, to be near him, to be at his feet. Again, Martha is consumed with getting food ready in the kitchen. This week I was looking at uh, sort of a survey of of artwork that deals with this theme of Mary and Martha, and there's a, a motif kind of in the Renaissance period or just after that that gives great detail to Martha's incredible feast, right? If you're hosting Jesus, this must be what it looks like. All the the fish and the eggs and the meat and all that Mary, or sorry, Martha is, is working feverishly to prepare. But Jesus, in the Greek here, says that, that while Martha is consumed with these many things, it's Mary that has chosen the better portion. There's kind of a suggestion in the language there that Mary has chosen the better meal, the more satisfying thing to give her attention to. Mary has prepared time to be with me, time to be near me, time to listen to my words for her. This is true hospitality. This is true worship. Peter Scazzaro says in his book that Mary has one center of gravity in her life, not many. And it keeps her rooted in that place at Jesus' feet. The practice of simply spending time with Jesus and quiet Right, in, in that unhurried sense, is often called contemplation. 
And for those of us who are struggling with, with symptoms of worship fatigue and an emotionally unhealthy spirituality, contemplation often helps us recover the center of, of what it means to belong to Jesus. Right? To just have that practice of doing nothing but, but sitting with him, adoring him, noticing him, listening to him. One of the resources we're using with our small groups over the next 10 weeks is, is the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, but there's also this devotional uh, that, that uh, is, is offered as well. And in many ways, it's like most other devotionals you might pick up, except that this one really tries to give priority to a space for contemplation. It's not so much about deep study or, or new information. Instead, it's inviting you to be with Jesus take a a short passage of scripture and to let it speak to you, to meditate upon it. It lets the word of Jesus speak into our lives. And we need those regular, those everyday opportunities to let our hearts and our minds catch up with the reality that God is always with us, always speaking to us, that, that his love is always pursuing us. He's always desiring to to act in our lives, to make us whole. Some of the authors and voices quoted in in these devotions may be less familiar to us. They're taken from church history and and monastic communities. And that's largely because our own evangelical heritage hasn't always adequately emphasized this idea of of slowing down, just to, to be with Jesus. But I found those insights and those practices helpful in my own walk with the Lord. So as we finish this morning, I want to give you the gift of one whole minute just to be with Jesus. I know that seems like a lot, right? (laughs) Just to receive the gift of sitting at his feet. So I want to invite you, go ahead and you can just close your eyes, make yourself comfortable. And I'm going to paraphrase and personalize the last two verses of this passage. And then we're just going to be quiet for 60 seconds. And then I'll close us in prayer. Okay? But just receive these words as your own. Jesus says, Today you may be worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. Choose what is better. Choose to sit at my feet, and it will not be taken away from you. Just enjoy the presence of the Lord.
Lord, we thank you that every morning when we rise, you are with us. And you desire for us to be near you, to be with you. Lord, we thank you that as we go into the work of each day, that you desire to be near us, for us to continue to be with you. Lord, we thank you that as we come to the end of each day, that your love continues to pursue us, and that we may finish our day with you and near you. Lord, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation, the intimacy of a walk with you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.